Mind 10 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. So last week we dealt with biblical feminism, which we coined the real radical feminism because it's such a radical idea in today's society. And we mentioned one thing that we would, we didn't have time to deal with in that episode, but is seeming to gain more and more attention in Christian circles today. And that's women's head coverings as a sign of submission. Yeah, there's a lot of debate about it. Does 1 Corinthians 11 prescribe this as a practice for Christian women today at all? Or was this a cultural thing for the Corinthian church of that day? And if it is applicable for Christian women today, is it only during worship services or all the time, like the Amish and Mennonite communities that are around where I live? Let's start by reading the text. All right, I'll read it. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prophesies or prays with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. There's a lot to unpack there. A lot. So let me start by saying this. Okay, this passage is in the midst of a chiastic structure. If you've listened to many of our podcasts or you've been in any of our Bible studies, you'll know that a chiasm is a literary structure used to focus your attention on the most important point. They're found all over the Bible and they can be in the middle of a chapter. They can be a whole chapter. They can be a whole book, whatever. In this case, chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians are a chiasm having to do with corporate worship, which means the worship service. And at the center of that big chiasm is chapter 13, the love chapter, which we all know from many weddings. And within that chapter, another chiasm focusing on spiritual maturity in the context of using our spiritual gifts in corporate worship. And Chris, you're telling us this because as we or anyone else dives into this controversial issue of head coverings, we need to remember when it comes to using our spiritual gifts or talking about how we should or shouldn't use them, spiritual maturity 
grounded and rooted in love has to be kept at the forefront. Amen. That's exactly why I said that. Believers should love each other and any discussion or debate about these things should reflect that love. So let's dive in. This is a hotly debated text, partly because it's confusing. Is the Apostle Paul talking about a veil or some other sort of headpiece that a woman would wear? Or does her hair count as a natural head covering? And then does it only count if it's long hair, but not short? These are the questions that some people debate. But what's plain from the text that it is something that should distinguish the way a man looks from the way a woman looks. Exactly. And that's not a popular idea in some circles today. You don't even have to identify if you're a man or a woman today. <laughs> hey, you can be on the woman's list and be a man. That's right. We, we saw, saw last week. That's right. But the idea of there being a distinction is tied back to creation in this passage. First Corinthians 11 has to do with authority. It deals with gender roles and the God-given authority of husband over wives and male leadership in the church. Paul's concerned with there not being any look of impropriety or sinful behavior during the worship service for both sexes. And there were only right. two sexes then. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Not, not I, however many 50,000 I, I there are today. I think I heard 21. Oh, <laughs> it's insane. That just doesn't make any sense. The issue of authority is seen right away in verse three, which I'll read again. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Now, some say that the word head really means source, but that rendering, while that could be correct in some places, doesn't really fit this passage. And in over 50 examples of this expression, person A is the head of person B which is found in Greek literature, person A has authority over person B in every case. So let's start with the last part of this first verse. The head of Christ is God. We're going to digress for a moment and make it very clear that we do not believe in ESS, which is the eternal subordination of the Son. We believe that all three persons of the Trinity are equal in their divine nature and attributes from eternity. Right. The Trinity is not composed of greater and lesser gods, there's one God existing eternally in three co-equal persons. Exactly. Maybe someday we'll do an episode on ESS. Yeah. Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as we said last week, when Jesus was on earth, he willingly submitted to the Father's will. We know that from Matthew 26, 39, while Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And in John 6, 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is the model for men and women in this authoritative scenario. You want to explain that a little bit, Rose? Sure. And we're going back to Genesis like we did last week. Genesis 1, a verse we did read last week, affirms that men and women are both created in the image of God. 
It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both are equally important. Neither is less significant than the other, but they have different roles. But again, the same worth and value. Like the three persons of the Trinity have different roles. God the Father chooses. God the Son secured salvation for the elect. And the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to God's chosen people. Right. So moving on in the First Corinthians text. First, let's look at this text in the cultural context. At that time, in some pagan cults, men wore head coverings. Paul says it's dishonorable for men to prophesy and pray in the Corinthian church with their head covered. God wants his people to be distinct from the world. That may be part of the reason why, why Paul says no head coverings for men in worship services. But he says the opposite for women praying and prophesying in worship. He does. And if it's dishonorable for women not to have a head covering when praying or prophesying, what constituted a head covering? Was it her hair? Was it only hair? Could that hair be short? Was the head covering something else? So, Chris, let's read those verses having to do with that again. Okay. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Then later in verses 14 and 15, it says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair is to disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. This is why it's so confusing. Yeah. So let's deal with the cultural aspects first. Prostitutes in that period had a problem with lice. Thus, they kept their hair short or sometimes shaved so they could get rid of the lice easier. Therefore, some scholars argue that short or shaven hair said temple prostitute. Also, many commentators say that a physical head covering was a sign of marriage. So going without one would be controversial, like taking off your wedding ring to go bar hopping. So culturally, having the women cover their heads would take away any kind of distraction that might arise from a cultural standpoint for a person that was up prophesying and praying during worship. Nobody would be wondering or chattering, you know, oh, this prophesying woman was really a prostitute because they wouldn't see her hair. You couldn't see the hair if it was covered. But could a woman's covering be her long hair, as some argue, Paul says in verse 15, that if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Rose, want to clear that up a little bit? I'll try. I, I think it's clear it's some type of covering. From historical evidence of clothing of that time, it's not likely that it's a veil or head covering like a Muslim would wear today. So what was the covering? Well, nobody's really sure, but the long hair, Paul says, is a woman's covering has more to do with the verse before it and the actual heart of the passage than the actual covering. And I know that's not really clearing it up, but let's try to, let's try to do that. Let's read verses 14 and 15 again. They say, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. Right. The thrust of the passage as a whole makes it clear that there's a natural distinction between a man and a woman. They are different from one another. Although equal in worth and value, there is male authority that God has put into place. 
And that's why Paul takes the argument back to nature. He's basically referring back to men and women being created different from one another. To try to blur the lines of the gender differences of men and women is confusing and it's not following God's design. We talked about this last week. Right. And it's not the only place that Paul uses this argument from nature. No, it's not. He does it in Romans with verses 1, 18 to 20, which says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And then he launches into the verses about exchanging natural relations between a man and a woman for unnatural ones. Right. So in the Corinthian church, he's calling for a distinction to send a confusing message about your marital status or your promiscuity or your gender while doing some type of leading during the worship service would be bad. Can you imagine your pastor, your male pastor getting up and dress in high heels? <laughs> you know, no. I mean, this was about women doing some type of leading. We have to get past that. Paul's addressing women who were prophesying and praying, most likely during the worship service. You have to deal with the fact that these women were, in fact, doing whatever prophesying and praying meant when Paul wrote it. As we said in the last episode, women preaching on Sunday morning is prohibited in the pastoral epistles, where that's left to the elders who are men. Scripture never contradicts itself. It's the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it can't contradict itself. So why is Paul seemingly okaying this if the woman covers their heads? Some say that Paul deals with the authority issue here and with women teaching or exhorting during corporate worship three chapters later. And some say the women in this passage weren't in corporate worship. They were prophesying and praying elsewhere. Regardless, for today's discussion, the question is, is the main thrust of this passage about women wearing an outward covering on their head? And I'm going to say again that the main thrust is not about what a woman is wearing on her head. That could be totally subjective, depending on the time in history and your culture. Yeah, exactly. The issue is, are we demonstrating that we're willing to come under the lordship of Christ and obey, even if that goes against the cultural norm? Can we be modest when the culture worships immodesty? Do men and women understand the order of submission? And are they showing a watching world that they understand there are two genders that have different roles? It's not about a veil or a white lace cap on the top of your head. Exactly. In some cultures, to say that a woman has to wear a head covering would make no sense. And in some cultures, men always wear earrings. <laughs> That's right. You know, people who are four actual head coverings for women today base it on these things. One, that Paul argues from creation. Two, that Paul uses the word churches in verse 16, thus extending it beyond the Corinthian church. Three, that he says the churches have no other practice or custom. And four, that it's not hair because you can put it on and take it off. Although However, you can do that with hair. Well, yeah, you can. You know what? And if either you or I ever get lice, we might have to do that. But Dr. Stephen J. Lawson, who's president and founder of One Passion Ministries, points out this. This is quoting him. 
This practice of wearing a head covering isn't taught anywhere else in the Bible. There's no biblical support for it anywhere. No, there's not. And ideally for scriptural support of something like wearing head covers, you want to, one, have been taught by Jesus, and two, have it practiced in Acts by the early church, and then three, be clarified in the epistles. Exactly. For example, foot washing was taught by Jesus, but it's not seen being done by the early church anywhere in Acts, and it's not clarified in the epistles. It's not wrong to do it. It's also not wrong to not practice that. It isn't something that's taught by the whole counsel of God. And all the times I've been a guest in your house, Chris, you have never washed my feet. And I probably never will. <laughs> but if you wanted me to, I would. No, that freaked me out a little. <laughs> so, so each person's conscience should guide them. Chris, there's a few parts of this passage we haven't dealt with. Verses 8 to 12 say, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God. There's some really bad patriarchal stuff happening today because of verses 7 to 9. Yeah, there are. Some try to take those verses and twist them to make it say that a woman's job is to please her man, make him happy, only take care of the home and the children and him, and that's basically all she's useful for. I even saw a list today of everything a woman who's pleasing to the Lord ought to know how to do. It was like sew and cook and what I mean, it was oh a long gosh. list. And I, I'm my answer, I had to respond. You know, my answer was where is that prescribed in scripture? <laughs> you know, where? Even the Proverbs 31 woman didn't have oh, to do that. Yeah, that. well, the woman whose website that came from, it, she's really off base. And that kind of understanding of things makes for a perfect setting for abuse in a man yes. and woman relationship. There are some websites and blogs by women even who take this to a dangerous place and they get very unbiblical in their posts and their tweets on social media. Yeah. When we had Michelle Leslie on, we talked about this. There are mm -hmm. men and women who, mm -hmm. you know, say to women, go shut up and make me a sandwich. Absolutely. Yeah. And women think that's okay. Yeah. They think that's their job. I even saw someone post on Vody Bauckham's Fault Lines launch team, which you and I are both members of, where she mm -hmm. made a comment about the book and said, I, I respectfully submit this with the permission of my husband. So, and there's another quote, okay. and I'm going to quote here. The Apostle Paul commands those that burn to marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. He also commands us not to deprive our husbands for lack of self-control. Most godly men marry because they burn. They want sex. They want a wife who's available to them to meet this need. If you are married, you're to fulfill that need for your husband. If you don't, you have some part in his seeking out porn or an affair if he does. Way to take personal responsibility. Uh, yeah, and way to, you know, I mean, seriously, saying that you're responsible for your husband looking at porn or affair, putting that on, you know, there are women and men who take this kind of teaching to heart. And that's, like I said, when the relationship can get abusive. Mm 
Yeah. First Corinthians seven, three and four says the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the <laughs> husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does pretty clear that a wife is just as much authority over her husband's body as he is over hers. You know, Paul gets a bad rap, but he's rarely one-sided on these issues when you read on in whatever passage it is. I completely agree. And that just goes along with when you get married, you become one flesh. An example Paul gives us is in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, which says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This passage goes on to say Christians should submit to one another at a reverence for Christ, not because they burn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it says that right before it fleshes out what this should look like in the context of different types of relationships. Exactly. And I'm going to quote Barnes' commentary on here. Barnes is one of our favorite. In Ephesians 5, he says, Submitting yourselves one to another, maintaining due subordination in the various relations of life. At the same time that he enforces this duty of submission, however, he enjoins on others to use their authority in a proper manner and gives solemn injunctions that there should be no abuse of power. That's right. The headship of man over woman from creation doesn't diminish her worth any more than Christ could ever be inferior to the father. Great example. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God. Equality doesn't negate the issue of headship. And headship doesn't give license to any man or any husband to treat his wife or any woman as inferior. Absolutely. And I've seen disturbing things on the internet when researching this head covering thing. In reform circles, I've seen men who seem to be trying to put pressure on women and other men to gain support for the issue of women wearing a covering on their head. Talk about legalism. Yeah, if a tertiary issue means that much to you, then you'd better examine yourself to see if you have a heart issue. Maybe you like the idea of someone showing their submission to you outwardly, and maybe it's an idol. I'm just saying, you know, don't take verses seven through nine out of context. Right. And as we saw a few weeks ago, when we talked about the Dallas statement, those pastors said trying to make a tertiary issue, something essential or even secondary is a sin. And as yep, you said, it is. Paul doesn't end it in verse nine, Chris. Paul giving women any kind of equal status with men in that day was revolutionary. Women today don't read it that way, but it was paganism that held women down. Christianity raised them up. Absolutely. The text in 1 Corinthians 11 goes on to say, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. That's right. Men and women need each other. In fact, at creation, it was not good for man to be alone. So God created his perfect complementary partner. And it wasn't just to make him a sandwich. Adam needed Eve. And men still need women. And women need men. It's God's design. And men should remember Christ, although equal with the Father, thought equality as something not to be grasped, but instead took the form of a servant. 
Husbands and church leaders, pastors and elders, Christ is your example. He was a servant leader. If you're being a tyrant leader towards women, you're sinning. And Chris, let's talk about the angels. Why did Paul say the Corinthian woman should be wearing head coverings because of the angels? I'm going to explain it from Alistair Begg's sermon on the subject. He said there's two views. The first view is the authority mentioned is solely the authority of the man, and it's referred to as wearing a sign of a man's authority on her head. And therefore, you do it not to offend the angels because they're the guardians of the divine order. They were present at creation, and they saw what God planned from creation as far as roles of man and woman and would be offended of any transgression of that order, meaning the sign of authority is a man's authority over a woman. View two, Alistair says, it's both a sign of a man's authority over a woman and also a sign of her authority with the respect to the rest of creation and particularly in relationship to angels. Because the place granted to women in Christianity, unlike other religions, is that she was placed above all creation, including angels. And barring her father prior to marriage and her husband in marriage, she possessed and possesses great authority. Therefore, it may not just be a symbol of submission to authority of the man. Her hair or her covering is a symbol of that authority over the created order, which includes the angels. Yeah, angels were present at creation. Rebellion started with the fallen angels, the demons in heaven. Satan and his demons brought that rebellion to earth. Ultimately, they got Adam and Eve to switch their gender roles. So seeing this text in light of subverting those roles makes perfect sense. And if we see it again at the end of the section where Paul takes the argument back to what nature teaches, it's crazy how this teaching is lining up with what's happening today in society. It is because women are trying to look like men or, and vice versa. So should women have to wear head coverings today? No. This is about the headship of God over Christ Christ over man, and man or husband over woman in the context of the worship service. From this passage, what we should teach is that Christians in that culture, whatever that culture is, neither the man nor the woman should do anything that would appear immoral or anything that would reject or have the appearance of rejecting their gender or showing a misunderstanding of the authority structure that God ordained for worship. Those are not going to be popular ideas today. Now, we don't have to go back in time, Rose, and have women wear only dresses and never wear pants. And we don't have to dress like the Amish or Mennonite if we aren't. But the absence of or wearing of head coverings in Corinth sent a message. The principle is timeless. The application is going to vary, but it's still relevant. So what's our message going to be? The message is men shouldn't try to be women and women shouldn't try to be men. And we should clearly know the difference between men and women. We've watched TV shows where I don't even know if it's a male or female, the character. But the important I thing, know. when we talk about this with other Christians, we need to remember what we said at the beginning of the episode. This teaching is in the midst of a chiasm about worship structure, one where love amongst believers is the central point. So wherever the discussion takes you, discuss it lovingly. Absolutely. And that's all we have time for today. Don't forget to check out our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com and like us on whatever platform you're listening to. Have a blessed day, everybody. 